0: And ride with me in my foul
1: life. This you sit in this room and there's guns everywhere, and then there's <laughs> kind, kind of an AR-looking platform guitar, a six-string guitar. Yes. What what's with the guitar?
0: That was uh in a music store for years, and uh Beat Street Music, a little shop, great guy. And uh I've been eyeballing it for years. Now my background, I was a professional guitar player for about twelve years out of high school.
1: And uh what do you mean by professional? You got I played,
0: paid? I played on the road in bands, um, in the East Coast, all over the East Coast, and then moved out to California. Um, I went to a vocational school, musicians Institute in Los Angeles for it's a one year, super intensive vocational school, played with everybody and uh had a couple instructional videos out, and just was graduating from school and start like, all right, audition, start get into a band, get something going. And I was working on my second instructional video, and I developed tendonitis in my arms so bad that I, I couldn't play professionally anymore. So, really? Yeah, it was right at the point. Um, it was frustrating. Guitar Player Magazine, which was the magazine of the day back then, had uh, they put out this thing? They're looking who's the best unknown guitar player, unsigned unknown guitar player. I sent them a demo tape, and they did an article on me. Really? Yeah, in the magazine. So I started getting phone calls. Stuff started happening, and my elbows blew out. I had tendonitis in my forearms. I battled it most of my life, and uh, it forced me out. Which it was a dark. I just gotten married. It was I mean I married my high school sweetheart. She had moved out to California. It was tough.
1: Is this the uh, early '80s when this is going on? This was in
0: 1987.
1: When 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 that quit playing guitar? Yeah, when
0: I. I couldn't, I couldn't, I still could play. I could only play for a few minutes and, uh, I had to do something. So I took a job telemarketing, um, is printer ribbons, typewriter, you know, they were old printer ribbons back in the day, it was this little company on a phone selling to businesses cause I had no other skills, but music and, uh, I had to make money. I had to do something to just to survive, did that. And I was so bad at sales, but the guy liked me. So he moved me to a non-sales position, like in the office. And I was just like, I was watching guys who were commissioned up making a lot of money. I said, I got to do this or I'm going to, I'm going to do this or I'm going to, I'm going to die trying. So I quit that company and started a straight commission job doing the same thing, selling computer supplies for a, for a small company, straight commission. There was no pay and just read every book, listened to, it was back then cassette tapes, driving to work every day, Zig Ziglar, all those guys just immersed myself in the world of sales. and. uh figured out how to sell and two years later quit and started my own business in an apartment with, uh, two partners And uh, my office was a cardboard box. It was, it was an apartment in a bad neighborhood in San Fernando Valley. I mean, it was a drug. It was cheap. It's, you know, we, again, we had no money. And every morning I'd drive over there get my little cardboard box out, get a phone. We just, we use uh, yellow pages, calling businesses, selling stuff, and, uh, just kind of built the company really slowly. And it was, it was really, it was kind of a magic time because I had nothing to lose. I, mean, I had nothing. You know, Julie, my wife was working in a bank. We lived in a, we had a little one room apartment in a nasty neighborhood in Burbank, just kind of young and figuring stuff out. And uh, about four four months into it, we, we got a small office, hired a first sales rep, which hiring your first person is kind of, it's, it was really looking back at it because nobody works for people who don't know how to hire people. And we hired, the first people we were hired were horrible. We didn't know what we were doing. And, but slowly we, we found some good quality people. We trained them. And uh, three years later, we had 18 sales reps and the company was growing. And we really, we had really, we really had a business going, growing every year. And uh, in 1990, let's see, this was 87, 93, I sold, 93, or 94, I sold to my partners and went off on my own. And I just, I didn't want to, we were kind of going in different directions. So I sold that business and started Greenline Data, doing the same thing from scratch again in my apartment, hiring people and built that into a pretty good sized organization in the late 90s, got into the internet when the internet was first coming out and started writing web pages. I taught myself HTML and just started playing with websites and econ, that whole thing was really non-existent. It was buy.com was the big popular one. And I just was looking at So I started making websites just for different products. Just thinking, you know what? If somebody finds me, maybe they'll buy something. I had a website for crossbows, for just anything I could think of. We just put up pages. And I had racks, the metal racks for holding computer tapes. It was something we did sell. We, we had them. We never sold them. I made a website with pictures of tape racks. and And all of a sudden we started getting... It was Yahoo back then before Google. We were SEO. We were, we were number one on tape racks. And all of a sudden people were sending us requests. I need a quote. I need a quote. So we started selling tape racks. And then I created TapeRack.com as as a website. And we became one of the larger in the country sellers of computer storage racking for all the backup tapes. And then HIPAA laws came out where all of a sudden hospitals had to lock laptops. One of our rack suppliers had a little cabinet that would hold laptops and you could plug them all in, hooked up to a network and charge them all. And we came, I created uh, laptopstorage.com and securelaptopstorage.com and we crushed it with uh, laptop storage. And the company was, I don't know, we were, it was a small business, probably 5 million a year in sales, probably 15, 20 sales reps. And I got a phone call in 2001. Um, I just got my hair, my hair was down to my waist. So, this is. is
1: going into the beginning stages of what we're sitting in now. It is. In 2000. But I got to ask this. A, yeah. I got to ask a couple of questions real quick. At that time, you got to tell me some of your influences in the guitar. Is it Eddie Van Halen? Is it, at that time, are you a classic rock guy? Are you a Southern rock guy? Um, what, are, you a, are you a Michigan kind of bass? Are you Bob Seeger, um, Bruce Springsteen? Who are you?
0: I was way more classical music rock. Um, my biggest influence would probably be Yurik Roth, a lot of people don't know. He played early scorpions and went off on his own um but it really was i listened to a lot of classical music
1: is yingve in in- malmsteen
0: malmsteen it- he was uh he was in guitar player magazine just before the same the same series unknown guitar players really yeah he was in he they did an article on him he got it, big in the late he days. was like he like was, he's, hit he's, and circus oh, magazine yeah, he was a burner he was a screamer i was more that i didn't that was more my style. I was a burner. I was a speed. That's why I got tendonitis in my arm so bad because I was a, a cooker of uh, playing. But I also played a lot of. I mean, I could I can cover myself in jazz. I can cover myself in blues. So I could, I could span a pretty so wide. So was your
1: cover band? Was your band a cover band, or were you writing originals?
0: We did um, the biggest band I played in here. We were a Deep Purple cover band, and then I played in a Judas Priest, Iron Maiden cover band. No way! I'm telling you something. It was. We didn't make Rob money. And we Bruce got, Dickinson. but we—it was so much fun. You know, played a. We played in the a, city too. We were doing. It was, they called it like the throughway circuit. It was like Albany to Cleveland, hitting mm-hmm. all the cities. And we'd play. We had a house we rented in Buffalo. We had a van that we all rode in. We had a four-man crew with a truck. I never touched any gear. We'd show up, do sound check, get something to eat, shoot some pool, go on, do our two sets, jump in the van, head to the next city. And we'd head out like Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Sometimes a Sunday night. Then we'd be Monday, Tuesday off. And that's that's what we did. And uh, it was fun, but it was a grind. I'm a morning person. I'm not a night person, so it
1: was it was tough. The music business is tough. I'll
0: tell you what. It was interesting because when I couldn't play anymore, I felt I was at the point where like, okay, things are going to start happening. And then this was kind of taken away. Um... I was really bitter and mad and just frustrated for probably three or four months. And uh, I started getting in the sales zone, started immersing myself in it and started the business and things started happening. And I look back at it now and I hated being a musician. I didn't realize how much I love playing guitar. I play guitar every day. Now I can't play as much as I used to, but I like playing. I hated the industry. I didn't realize how unhappy I was dealing with the lifestyle. I mean, I, I'm, I'm better up in the woods, up early in the morning watching the sunrise, sit with an acoustic, you know, and just just uh, more outdoor style than that, yeah, than that whole lifestyle. So it's, uh, in the end, it worked out. It probably, like, if I hadn't developed tendonitis, I'd probably still be beating my head against the wall trying to be a musician musician it's it's giving
1: lessons online now
0: I, I tried to do teaching and i did instructional videos i could do one-on-one instruction i'm I'm just not good at it i knew i wasn't i didn't even try so it's
1: wasn't where it was gonna go <laughs> so now i'm picturing you riding around in this car listening to these cassette tapes for the yep. listeners that know what a cassette tape was but yep. what are could you remember some of the things that you picked up on how to sell like i remember the movie. i remember movies i remember oh, different yeah. Different, you know, in business school and business classes, and yep. um, there's a knack for it. Is it something that can be taught? Yeah, it it
0: <laughs> is, but it, it does require. There's a personality. There are personality types that that really won't be good salesmen. They just won't. And I, in doing my telemark, we were a telemarketing business. So we, I remember Green Line Data, um, and Jet Computer, the first two. Jet Computer, in five years, we went through 456 sales reps. I remember when I left, we were at sales rep number 456 because you're hiring a lot of people and the people who don't hang with it, they're gone. And the people that are good are good. And there's certain personalities that just aren't good with, I mean, this was hard closing, grinding. um, The movie Boiler Room is the most accurate movie for, and that was a movie about guys scamming. We weren't scamming. We were selling, providing high quality products just at a better price than the stores. Or we were playing better service. You know, back then it was, the computer department, data processing of a company, their most valuable asset was their computer back then. They're expensive, so they're typically in the center of a building, no windows. You know, offices were pretty pretty bleak. So we call, and you you end up since it's a consumable, you'd get that first order, which you'd fight for. Then call back, touch base, and you'd build a relationship. So you know, we get sales reps two, three, three years into it, they've got three hundred customers. And there's every day they're picking up, calling friends. Hey, haven't talked to you. How's the kids doing? And you're, you're kind of a conduit for these people in computer departments to something more. So we end up becoming almost social workers. It was, it was pretty cool. Um, top sales reps. My top sales rep made more than I did, a lot more.
1: What are, the, what are the attributes? What are the qual, like personality traits of a good salesman? Some of the things that I've learned are like, you got to learn yeah. how to find common ground. You know, you go into this office and you might see a picture on the wall, or you might have heard something about this purchase manager, or this mm-hmm. superintendent, or this construction manager, whatever you're trying to sell, he might be into skiing, he might be into motocross, he might be into RVing or something. Yeah. And you try to find, but what are some of the traits that you would learn to be a salesman? It's, um, I think the biggest- Or the personality traits that you might want to start with.
0: Well, the big the biggest one is you can't be affected by what people think of you. Because in in sales you're you're getting a lot of rejection, a lot of no, and the people that internalize that they 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 implode. They can't they can't deal with that much if they're truly if that's actually affecting them. That no, that I'm not good enough. I didn't get the order. If you have the ability just to brush that off, it doesn't matter. You know, I wasn't a good salesman when I started. I was in fact I was really bad. They moved me out of sales. I was so bad, but I went back in and really ground it. What I found for me was there are people that are a lot better than me. But what what can I control? I can control how many calls I make. So most sales reps in telemarketing were making 60 to 75 calls a day. I was making 170. I was just, I was so fast. I got so good at, I started talking to somebody. The minute I sensed, this is not the kind of person that buys from me. I was like, you know, thank you very much. And I just, and I knew for me, it wasn't about sell everybody. It was make enough calls to find the people that I just naturally clicked with. The guys who were really good could be could click with people. For me, it was more about finding people that I clicked with. But it worked again. That's just a simple thing of move fast, be persistent, and s- stick to it. Stick to stick to what you know is working, and uh, it really it, it, it was a grind. It was not like instant success. It was years of just grinding it out
1: and uh so do you think that that was kind of the instructional period of you learning how to be a businessman how to be an entrepreneur because i've always thought that the entrepreneurial spirit is something that you're born with i don't know if you can go to college and get educated no, on, and having the spirit of an entrepreneur
0: i don't think so i think for, when i look at it, i use, there's two terms there's entrepreneur and there's one entrepreneur well, entrepreneurs want to be entrepreneurs and they may go to study, they read, they do all this stuff, but the, the, it's not education, it's risk tolerance. When I look at people who want to be entrepreneurs, the thing that's stopping them is risk, is, is, is not being able to ta- tolerate or deal with risk because it's, you want an entrepreneur, okay, fine, you've got a great idea. Quit your job. Start tomorrow. Build that company. Well, I can't, I've got, and, and they won't do it. The entrepreneur quits the job, they don't care. You know, it's a great example is of people who really aren't cut out and are. I was running Jet Computer; we were growing every month. So I've got commission sales reps, I got to make payroll, we're paying them. Payroll comes out of my bank every Tuesday, would pay commissions. Now we're selling a lot, we're billing people. So my average time they pay me was 50 days. So I get orders, like sales, and, but I got to pay the commission right away. So my sales reps get paid. So we're always fighting this cash flow of not having enough cash. And it'd be Friday, payroll comes out on Tuesday. I knew I didn't have enough money in the bank to cover it. And if, in a small business, if you don't make payroll, A, the employees will quit. B, they can, they can take legal action against you. It's Especially in, I was in California, it's pretty brutal. The non-entrepreneur doing that job would not sleep that weekend. They'd be a nervous wreck because they don't have enough money in their bank to cover payroll. I knew Monday was my biggest mail day because mail goes out Thursday Friday, and people cutting checks all the mail comes in monday that's your biggest, and back then all the checks came in the mail i'd sleep fine, I was fine, just trusting the process that Monday will have a lot of mail we'll open checks we'll make the deposit, and we'll be fine, and we were We ran that company on the edge of cash flow implosion for five years, never having never having a penny, always being but. The entrepreneur focuses on build your people, build your team, stick to your principles, go, go, go. Somebody who wants to be an entrepreneur that isn't is always worried, looking over their back. Well, what if we, well, what if I, what if you get these and they stress out. The not, the people who are stressed out about running a small business want to be entrepreneurs, but they're not cut out for it. And it sounds harsh. I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound, it's not an arrogance. It's not a, it's a personality type. I really believe. Um, there are a lot of times I wish I could just at the end of the day on Friday, go home and just not do this. Just turn it off. can't, you can't, no, it's, that's the other side of being an entrepreneur. Saturday morning, I'm up, I've got two laptops. I've got, I
1: mean, I'm just. How, did it ever affect your personal life?
0: No, I've got, I mean, I've got, I married my high school sweetheart. We met in 79. I was a senior. She was a junior and stayed in touch. I was playing in bands. I was out and around doing stuff. I moved to California. I was there for a year. We stayed in touch. I flew back, got engaged, flew back, got married, and she drove out. And we've been together, you know, since 1979. She's tall, She puts up with a lot. I mean, I am who I am. But,
1: uh, but I now you get, can now you can afford to slow down and give her these yeah. golden years.
0: We do, <laughs> you try to, but it's hard to slow down. But even though I've always been big, though, when there's times to turn off, there's times I walk away from my business. There's, you know, I've always been able to get my business, and get good people where guys, I'm. A, we're going on a little vacation, we're gone for five days. Any emergencies, call me. I'm good. Just if you have an emergency, call me. You guys know what to do. I'm going to go for five days and I not get a call. They, they, because they just, the guys, if, Train them and trust them, and they make good decisions. Um, So I've been fortunate with that. But uh, it would be, there would be sometimes nice to just, the people who on Friday, their job is over. You don't think about it till Monday. It'd be interesting. The other side I always tell people is, if it's Sunday night and you're looking at Monday and you're like, oh God, I gotta go back to work, quit.
1: Quit your job. That's, get that's, a job that's get a the,
0: job i mean i have monday morning i can't wait to get in i can't here. wait
1: till sunday night and getting that that adrenaline yep. going you know people are like oh sunday night sucks we got to go yep. back i look like i'm excited mm-hmm. and, and, and here's a weird here's a weird thing tom is like when it in this business that i'm in and you're in it big time too there's not a whole bunch of communication going on friday evening through sunday evening right so i almost get like anxiety, like somebody freaking call my phone. Like I need to do some type of business right now. And that's what I need to get better at is that being able to garner that and being able like, Hey, relax. And just, it's I'm still going to be on, you know, working. I'm still going to be making my list. I'm still going to be brainstorming and trying to come up with ideas and strategies and stuff. But man, when that, when it shuts off and you don't have that, that, you know, sense of accomplishment going on. I try to find the little things. Like I try to train these guys, like write a list every day on a spiral notebook. I was taught on a spiral notebook. You take notes on the backside of the last page. And then on this page, you have your list. You know, a procrastinator might not, you know, he might get, he or she might get three things done out of seven and move those four things to Tuesday. Not really procrastinate. You're still staying organizing. So then you take notes over here on what went down this day to where you're always reminding. But I always said, this is more than a list. I said, you don't have to put everything down in there. Like I wipe my butt, but put it in there, get fuel, get exercise, Workout. And then when you cross them off, there's accomplishment in all of these short-term goals, midterm goals that are going to build into long-term goals. You know what I'm saying of like, man, if you really understand the sense of accomplishment, you're going to learn how to build off of those small accomplishments and making time for a good workout, making time to cook a good recipe. And if you really, uh, you know, hold those close to you and say, all right, I I accomplished that today. Don't take everything that you do in a day for granted that it's not an accomplishment. Because a lot of people don't get a lot of that done in a the day. They'll get a TV dinner. They'll go to yep. the fast food line. So those small accomplishments, I try to train our team of like, those are going to build into the big picture. You know what I mean?
0: I do. You, you hit on a couple of things. One inch, you write lists. Lots of lists. I'll tell you what. And that's a, that's a common thing with, is I call it data dumping is, and as a musician, if you've got a song in your head, an idea
1: for a song, you wake up and put it in your phone right then.
0: You record it. Yeah, get it out. Get because it out because you, you You won't get another song idea. And the same thing with business ideas. Like I've developed a lot of products. We hold a lot of patents and stuff. I get an idea for something. I draw it just rough r- to get it memorial. Get it on paper. Get it out of my head because now my brain's freed up to think of something else. And a lot of people hold all their stuff in their head. That You stop getting ideas. You've only got. So, I always look at it as your brain has so much RAM you know, memory. If you fill it up with stuff and keep it there, it's not good. Write, write it down. And you talked about get something done. We I use the term here always. Don't worry about yesterday. No matter what happened, it's gone. You'll never get it back. Tomorrow's not here yet. Win today. Just every day. Win the day. Accomplish one thing. Start something. Get yourself on a path. But something where you can look back at the end of the day and I say, I won the day. And I also, in that review, I review the day, I go to bed at night and I look back, what could I have done better? What can I? What do I need to learn? What can I, where can I improve? And just think, I think about those things and I look back at the things I got done and I focus on what I can accomplish, not on what I can do. Again, it's talked about it earlier, the TV, I don't watch a lot of TV because it's it's passive you can watch TV all day, watch football all day. At the end of the day, what happened? You got nothing. There's nothing accomplished. And you know, when you're 95 years old, looking at the at the end of your life type stuff, you don't remember the days you sat and watched TV. No, but you remember um, a hike in the Adirondacks. You remember, you know, building that stone wall. Or you remember restoring that car. You remember all the things you accomplished. So I kind of.
1: It's kind of like the analogy, you know, there was, I was an athlete. I tried to be one, but I was, I had that competitive nature. And Mm -hmm. I think entrepreneurs do. Mm -hmm. I don't think that you need to be cutthroat, but you need to be competitive and you need to hold yourself accountable. And I think a couple of competitive quotes that I learned growing up was like, obviously Jordan, that you don't win until you fail. Like failure is Mm -hmm. a huge part of learning how to be a champion. Um, And the other one is Tiger Woods back in the day said, I could have the worst round of my life and hit one good chip shot on the 18th hole that brings me back tomorrow it's same with me in duck hunting yeah. you could sit out there for hours yep. hours in deer hunting turkey hunting and at the very last second you see a mallard cup up one greenhead, or one turkey comes in yep. or you hear one branch break and you see a little 130 inch you know duck, buck that you're not going to shoot it brings you back it makes a day. Yep. so what i apply that to our team as i say when you're talking about winning the day yeah is you could be laying in your bed at night being like man i didn't get anything done today and then you go wait a minute there's that one thing that came right. It was a phone call that came in. It gave me hope. It was a phone call that came in that, yep. that gave us a little bit of revenue. It was a meeting we had with the team that got some adrenaline and some momentum going towards, because momentum building is huge, right? And teaming. So if you think about it like that, to where those little tiny pieces of that entrepreneurial spirit puzzle can start fitting together to get that bigger picture, it doesn't happen overnight. A lot no. of people are so geared towards self-gratification right yeah. now because of social media now and they're watching all these other individuals live this perfect life through these these fake accounts of yeah. like i'm happy every day i'm winning i'm, I'm doing this I'm, I'm achieving every day it's not real life no the, if you if real life is going to kick you and knock you down so much mm-hmm. that you have to understand that you got to find the little things to take out of each day that are going to build into that bigger yeah. and even when you get bigger and even when your company's doing better you still got worries. You still have Mm -hmm. responsibilities and accountability and, and making sure that you, there's more to think about now. You know what I'm saying? Even if you go as far as like selling your company, you're still sitting there as an entrepreneur going, are they going to take care of it? I'm only retained for three years. I want to be retained for 10. I don't want to leave this place. You know, there's all those issues that come with, with success and getting bigger.
0: There is, it's uh, for me, it's, it's really about the people here now is, uh, you know secure it is the band of misfits that's why I I created that several years ago just I've never been a normal CEO I'm not I don't follow um my path into business was not particularly normal I've never I have got no college education I don't uh I'm not members of like corporate anything um I'm just kind of different and uh so we created the concept of the band of misfits That everybody we hire we acknowledge look Everybody in certain ways is quirky. Everybody has their idiosyncrasies. That's secure. We celebrate them. Allow, I mean, I want people to be creative. I want people to have the freedom and just be relaxed in an environment where their craziest ideas come out. And I did, a, I did an article in uh, LinkedIn years ago about creativity. And when you look at babies, children, they're, all they have is creativity because they have no experience. Everything they do is, is creative. I mean, little kids, they say little kids say the, the darndest things because they have no filter. Kids say funny things because there's no filter. Then they go to school and you're in school and a kid says something funny. Everybody laughs and looks at him. He's like, oh, I won't do that again. And then they, they do something. The teacher says, no, you want to do it like this? And slowly, creativity is slowly removed and you're, you learn to conform. As you come into you know adolescence, it's like about being with a group. It's a herd mentality. It's pretty natural for us as as a human. But again, we're always learning to be like everyone else to to not stick out, to be safe. And know, what we're trying to do here is, I want people to explore the creative side. I want people's crazy ideas. And we do brainstorm session is, you know, go for three or four minutes on ideas and stop. And say wait, okay. Now I want stupid ideas. I want the craziest ideas you can come up with. I want the silliest. I want the, and we do that, go with that for five, 10 minutes and get like, no, crazy. Come on, get something ridiculous. I want elves in here. I want shoe you know, something just, something, just nuts. And then you get them up on the board and say, guys, what's in between this? And now you're trying to get people out of like their normal thoughts to the crazy thoughts. Somewhere in between is the magic, magic. of just finding, again, in business nowadays with the speed of technology, Companies that harness creativity are the ones that are going
1: to gonna thrive. And that creativity is so, when I said the words momentum builder, when mm-hmm. you see in our business and yours too, like if you see somebody that gets a little taste of it, like oh, they yeah. edit a show or they edit a segment and the whole room's sitting there going, wow, yeah. that's good. That gives that producer, that post-production yeah. crew, that color corrector, that animator, that audio tech, they're like... All right, let's go. Yeah. Let's and, and all it does is let them become owners in the company, not on paper per and and you know, that happens too, but per you know, they be they take ownership in what the mission of right. secure it is, which we're gonna get into in a second. But that when you let them have that taste, and it's not always about the CEO mentality of like, hey everything runs through me kind of deal or that man, that middle management, yeah. everything runs up through me. That could be an accountability thing, but the creativity part of it, the companies that I see where the employees are having so much fun yeah. and you're going to have instances where people are going to leave and go do their own thing. That's America. That's free enterprise. Yep. All you can do is hope that they stay with you and give you their best for as long as it entails. Um, and, and the ones that go on to do it, you did, you left yep. the job sometime in your career to go be a business owner. Yep. Not everybody does that. It's hard. That risk management part, you know, how to, how to get over that fear of diving in is very hard for a lot of people. Um, But I think that once they get a little sliver of it, it just goes, and then the next one just go, it's even better because now they're not as scared anymore. They're not afraid to open up and be themselves or be quirky in an edit or be boisterous in something or or mix an audio drop where, you know, I'm talking about my business now. And then you're like, man, you're really coming into your own as a producer. And it, a producer, not just in film, like a producer for you, could be in other ways, right? Right,
0: right. It's uh, when you give people the freedom to do to really explore creativity, and you also have to have a company that a culture that is supportive, which we have here. Um, yeah, you know, I'm not sure where culture comes from. We have an amazing, I mean, the, the secure culture is unbelievable. What, what?
1: Yeah, I can tell. What, the,
0: what these people do for each other, what they will. And it's a uh, it's at a very personal level. I mean, we had a we had a young man working for us, and the way the company was changing, he wasn't the company was changing how things were happening. I could tell he just wasn't quite there with us. And we talked and said, so we help him find a job. Let's, you know, that's that's kind of what we Part do. It. It's um Yeah, I'm not sure what you call that. I mean, one of our core values improve the lives of others. That's you know, I live by a simple code. In simplicity, when you look around secure it, you'll see innovate and simplify. Everything we do, we create something. Okay, now make it simple. Simple solutions are the ones that withstand the test of time. I always tell you, in a junk drawer in your kitchen, everybody's got that one drawer with all the crap in it, pair of pliers, you're going to have a, a pair of scissors, duct tape, tape measure. Maybe, maybe a zip tie. You keep the simplest tools handy because those you solve the most problems. Yep. So we're always just really focusing on just keep it simple.
1: Yeah. And that's kind of what you did is your gateways exploding. All these mm. PC companies are exploding. Laptops are becoming a thing. Mm. And now you got to figure out a way to protect these and a way to carry them onto planes or keep them protected in your car. Because that's what a laptop was. It was something that you would take to right. and from work and to and from meetings. So now you're in this game and this you're offering a, a lap. You're, you're selling laptop storage yeah, these, these
0: are yeah these are big cabinets they would hold like, anywhere from six to 50 laptops you'd slide them all in you'd plug them in like in a hospital so you'd, you'd plug them all in like in a hospital so at night they're all updating and they're all charging but they're all secured in the day to the hot the in the morning the doctors all come in and take their laptop the laptops are either with the doctor or locked in the cabinet and uh it came out of nowhere because those laws were passed and hospitals didn't know what to do so we there were a couple of us in that business we did very well and uh which gets me to secure it in 2000 i think it was late this is two- a cool
1: story right i think here. it was
0: late 2001 and i get a phone call and i'm not a gun guy i mean i've shot guns i i mean it's, it's i wasn't an anti gun i just i wasn't a big gun guy at the time and uh i get a phone call and the guy says yeah can you guys store mp5s and I'm like, sure, sales guy. Oh, you know, sure. And I go, what's an MP5? And I'm thinking, an MP5 is a model of a laptop.
1: Yeah. And he goes, because he knows a- that's what you do. Well, you're thinking he knows yeah, that's what you do exactly.
0: And uh, he goes, it's a little machine gun. There's a pause. And I go, who is this? And he goes, I'm with the FBI. I said, you know what? I don't see why we couldn't. I asked him a few questions about, you know, d- define security for me. Define so I understand what is it you need. I said, okay. I said, so. I reached out to one of our manufacturers was in Canada, a company that we did a lot of laptop cabinets with. I knew the owner well. We kind of did some collaborative design work for laptop storage. And his name was Steve. I said, Steve, you got a call looking for MP5s, a little machine gun storage. He goes, Tom, Canadian. He did a lot of business with the Canadian government. It was a Canadian firm on the security side for storing top secret stuff. He goes, Tom, I got a call last month. Same thing. they are looking for storage for uh a C4. They had a different designation, basically M4 rifles, and so he had a basic design for a modular weapon storage system. And I said, "Let's market this in the U.S. as well." And we started marketing this uh, integrated weapon storage platform. We called it, and I I supplied him with a bunch of design work for open wall systems. And he and I just clicked, and we sold that system for about four four years, three four years. We were doing well with it they wouldn't give me an exclusive. We, we were the ones that were driving the whole US market on this, on this one particular product. We had competitors that were much larger than us that owned the space. We were the new guys coming in. And uh, I came to him with a bunch of design changes saying, look, the US military can't use this locking system. They also don't, we, we've got to have this, this, this. He liked everything. I said, and we've got to have an exclusive because we're the ones out there. You know, we're out there repping the product. Then one of his other dealers, just bids in lower and steals the business and they tried to do a bunch of protective things that steve you, he wouldn't give me what i wanted so we ended up developing our own solution and uh that was 2000 well 2006 u.s army special forces command use which doesn't that's part of socom now um army special forces they had a solicitation out they were looking for the contract with a company to tour all their armories talk to their armor spend a lot of time in give them a report as to why their armories were all failing, because the armories were a mess. The military was transitioning from an M16 rifle to the M4, which is really a modular weapon system with attachments. I mean, you're going from just a basic rifle to a modular system with IR illuminator, optics. Um, They had had so many things they could attach to it. In armories, the racks didn't fit, nothing worked. So we were up against, we'd heard about the contract, and there are big players you know Harris, L3, big players were involved in this thing. And we were a three-person company at the time. The secure it was the, the military now, I had the laptop storage side still running under Greenline data. Secure it was just a brand of um, GreenLine data was my business. In fact, Secure it was originally Secure .IT for securing laptops. And uh, we pushed it together, we got into the weapon storage, and uh, went into a meeting with a colonel at Fort Bragg and just introduced myself. I said, my name is Tom Kubanek. I'm the leading authority on small arms storage and armory design. And I think we're the company to to do this for you. And we talked for a little bit. We submitted a bid. Being a small company, our bid was really competitive. We won it. We won the contract. And uh, over the next 18 months, I traveled to every SOCOM Armory, uh, actually it it was Army, just Army Special Forces, toured the facilities, watched the workflow, interviewed the armorers I had access a civilian doesn't get. And over an 18 month period, we beca- I became the leading authority on small arm storage. We Even became- though you
1: told me you already were.
0: Well, it, it's a valuable lesson though. I mean, we I had nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. Yeah. and yeah. But the, the lesson in that one is, and I did just kind of figured this out, was if there is no authority in a given field, if you claim it, Nobody can dispute, nobody, no, there's nobody say, no, you're not. Cause there weren't, nobody knew this. This was the, the other companies, the big players in, in military weapon storage were office, office filing, companies that made office furniture that also made a rack for the, for the military. Cause it, it was a side business, but they weren't in the space. They just made these things and they didn't work very well. So we just claimed it, but then we backed it up. We spent our 18 months, took a ton of notes for, photographs and, prepared a wonderful report for them, laid out everything. But in doing all that and really seeing the problems, we came up with what well, at the time was called the Secure Tactical Weapon Storage Platform, which we now simply call Cradle Grid. And it's just a modular storage solution. Um, in the military, it's it's primarily one moving part. It can store any anything from a small MP5 or M4 up to a shoulder launch, you know, 50 cal machine gun, grenade launchers and shoulder launch systems. Um, the other competitors in that space, um, like the Canadian firm, they had a modular weapon rack and they had a different bracket for each gun, which they liked because they thought every time they get new guns, they gotta buy more stuff. They had 230 different components. When you first install the system, it works good, but if the military makes any changes, they gotta buy new brackets. Well, the military doesn't buy stuff easily. They don't buy brackets, they make do with what they have and the racks get worse and worse, because they've got the wrong stuff we came up with a rack where it's one piece doesn't matter it'll adjust to hold any gun and the rest of the system all the bins and the storage components you can buy at home depot there's all it was not proprietary which we took some risk on that because everybody else saying no you want proprietary that way you get all the business and i'm saying no we're trying to we're trying to improve the environment for the warfighter this is at the end of the gulf wars there's a lot going on it's like look our mission is to improve the capability of the warfighter. Those are the guys risking their lives for this thing. So we made it simple, modular, and open architecture. And uh, by 2011, we we're the largest supplier to the U.S. military. We just we crushed it. We just took over that market.
1: And what what did you crush it with? How when you said that the Canadian firm had over 270 or so different components, on, how many do you have?
0: I have one. Got one here. We've got a back panel, but that's patented, very simple bracket that holds you know holds a gun barrel holds it at the grip. this is cut to grab a rifle at a magwell with an m four to stand it up so you can drop bins behind at the store um this at the time was a mod the all the attachments that would go on an m four for special forces um but it also holds fifty cals You can configure these to hold you know mark nineteens the big grenade launchers, mortar cannons um it's just simple. It's You know, everybody makes a, a weapon rack. We made a tool. We made a tool that allows the armorer to build his own, to to build each rack to meet his individual needs, as opposed to, here's 50 racks that put your stuff in them. So the the Marine Corps out in Pendleton called our system the Tetris rack. So they start at the bottom and just build what they needed as they went. And then uh, the guys at Bragg, third group at Bragg called it the Lego rack, which I think is is a better analogy of Lego, it's modular, simple blocks, and you just build out the storage to fit your needs.
1: And that that's the one that you patented as Correct. far as your components go. Everything else you mentioned, you can get at Home Depot.
0: Uh, the, all the bins, the storage bins that you can buy at Home Depot, a lot of the stuff that we make, a lot of the metal trays, all the metal stuff we make is, people invest a lot of money in firearms, and if you're going to store them, you can buy cheap plastic bins at Home Depot but you're getting cheap plastic bins. A lot of, they, we sell a ton of our components because.
1: If so you do have more it, than one component.
0: We do. For actual storing the gun, it's one. Everything else is
1: gear. So this right here is not the one that's in the safe that we were just yeah, looking at. It this is. is it. That this just had to roll. This had... is
0: a, this is the bungee. And that this was the original it was a, now the bungees for California and for military for seismic. You know, it's not required, but this, should, you, you'd snap this on to go over the barrel for uh
1: to keep any, it in there. Yeah,
0: anything so wouldn't fall. And uh, now we have the snap grip, which is the rollers that we, sh- we saw in the shop.
1: Those um, are slick.
0: Yeah, it works really well. Everything else is for gear. And, you know, consumers, the consumer market tracks the military about 10, 15 years later. 2004, 5, 6, the military went from M16 to the M4. And since then, the volume of gear associated with guns, high value gear, is grown exponentially. The gun is the cheapest thing in the, in the armory. Opti- and you got thermal imaging optics, 16000 bucks a piece. you got got so- the value of the gear, and it all has to be stored and organized in a way where they can do a site count. They, have, they go in the armory, and they count every single thing. They do that Marine Corps daily. It can take four or five hours with a bad armory. Our system can take an hour.
1: And you have yes. it to where you can do horizontal display and yeah. vertical? Yeah. What is we, what is the piece that's allowing the horizontal?
0: That's just a simple, we just call it the horizontal mount. And we, this is, this is a, we made these originally for museums. And uh, we got a lot of requests to do museums. We did a lot of uh, boardrooms in some military bases where they'd have their, you know, their gold presentation, like uh, AK-40, all these cool old guns. So we did them behind glass. So we came up with this just to, for display. Then we went into the consumer market in 2015, right around there. This just became part of the gun. So almost system. a
1: decade after you win your first military contract. Is that about right? When, did, when was that? Oh yeah. nine, maybe? So maybe only six or seven years after? No, we,
0: we got into the military early 2000. We didn't start really hitting big orders in the military until 2006, seven.
1: And we really were rocking. Was secure it started in the, in the firearm part of it for military?
0: Um, Secure it as a company was incorporated in 2008. Two
1: thousand eight. It was
0: Greenline. Da- Greenline data held the GSA contract for the military selling Secure it brand. But Greenline was laptop storage and tape racks. It was so different. I split the two companies. I ended up selling Greenline. It just slowly as tape racks and laptop storage needs kind of dissipated. The company just got smaller. I just, I sold so off. So 15
1: years after you start the experience with yeah. military conversations and yeah. commitments and, and winning bids. And contracts, you. Do, how does how, what what happens for you to say? All right, we need to go into people's houses now and supplying yeah. with this because one of your missions was to educate America and other places around the world of gun storage, gun safety, yeah. confidence, everything that goes into it. So, what's going through your mind as a CEO and a and an entrepreneur now of saying, "All right, we're doing great in the private sector, in the federal, you know, with the military. That's that's guaranteed money, right?" Well, that can go away too. When the wars stop, that can go away, right?
0: It's interesting that uh, why do we go in the consumer? It's, I didn't see it. I mean, the military market in its biggest years was 17 to 20 million a year in weapon racks. It's, It's the biggest. The consumer market is 600, 800 million a year. So- we didn't even consider the consumer market. Now, we had a lot of seal. We had a lot of all the SEAL armories. A lot of those guys would say, hey, we want your stuff for our house. There's nothing good. We want your stuff. So we'd actually do a deal on them. If we are doing a military contract, we'd overrun it and get these guys, some of our military, our big cabinets for their houses. But uh, under Obama, when sequestration hit, that was the forced military cutbacks. And it, this wasn't, I mean, I'm not a supporter of Obama, but there was an Obama problem. This was a Congress problem. Congress would not... They just would not put a budget in. And to get the way things were tracking at that time, they put in sequestration saying, if we don't hit these financial goals with with Congress, these are forced military cutbacks. They, they made it a law so that cutting back the military wasn't anybody's decision. Oh, we have no choice. It's the law. It was crap. But when sequestration hit forced government cutbacks, we went from a vibrant business to... I went five months without getting a single order of any kind. Cool. Five months of a company making payroll. And we're trying, we're just thinking this is we're gonna come out of this. I've waited too long and we're I was burning through cash, trying to, you know, just work. We're still we're doing a lot of stuff to try to get business. And customers A military base, they loved what we did. And we were, you know, quotes, we were on bases, we were doing so much. So we had our trailer, our showroom, we're driving around. Everybody's excited, except there's no money. So they want the stuff, but they actually can't buy it. And we burned through most of our cash. We ended up laying people off. And uh, I was at a point where I'd sold off most of my personal, you know, my wife and I talked about selling the house. And uh, we had a nice house on a little lake up here, you in up in Casanova. And uh, we were at a point of selling the house. And that's where we we, I mean, we were just tracking out of business. And it was at that point that, so I've got to, I can't. No matter how good we are, if Congress shuts off the faucet, we're dead in the water. So we decided let's look at the consumer market. And we made the fast box our first retail product. We went into it slow, but it started catching. And then we made conversion kits. We took this this grid wall, we made kits to convert like Liberty Safes to our system. And they did well. And then the Agile cabinets came out about a year and a half later, and that took off. And people realized you know, gun safe interior, gun safes haven't changed in 50 years. They haven't. And gun safes have not kept up with the sweeping changes we've seen in firearms. Everybody has optics now. Everybody, the gear associated with firearms now is growing exponentially. Everything is going modular. Everything attaches, you know, depending on the hunt you're on, you deck out the gun to to meet those needs. And uh, the gun safe industry has never addressed it. Every gun safe is, in, is the same. There's little Ws, you're digging through all the guns banged into each other. They really don't hold guns very well because they were all designed at a time when everybody had lever actions, some bolt guns and shotguns, and all guns were, you know, 30, 40 inches. They were all big, long rifles and gun- and shotguns. Now everything's smaller, modular. So they saw our system was completely flexible, you know, based on the military array of firearms weapons. And uh, it just took off. It's, it, We launched the Agile. And a guy named Wrangler Star posted a video. That video went to 5 million views and we sold out of everything. And that's and that's when I really started learning about, why I started learning about digital marketing. So we, got, we didn't know anything about this. We were going into retail, really not knowing it and said, and I mean, our heads were turning like, holy cow. So we started creating the Secure YouTube channel. We did the, the This Week at Secure at show. We just started doing stuff. And we did some TV advertising early on and the brand just launched and just started taking off. We uh, cut back on TV advertising. We just couldn't quantify it, but the brand kept growing. Uh, We made Inc. Magazine's fastest growing companies in America uh, in 2018. We made it again last year. So we've made it twice now and we've spent zero on advertising. I mean, just, just, we, we do some social media stuff, but it's all word of mouth.
1: Our customers are fanatics. What? I have notes so forgive me yeah. if i keep I, I took so many notes yesterday and last night before yeah. dinner and after but one of one of the things that i just looked at was i want to make sure that i have this right okay so i'm a retail customer and i've had you know i've seen my dad's gun safe i've seen my buddy's gun safe in his garage one's mm-hmm. bolted down one's not one guy's got it in his his man cave one guy's got it in his spare bedroom okay that's what we've seen for yeah. years there's there's different there's different manufacturers out there when i'm a consumer and i'm looking at what i'm looking at right here on this secure it wall what's the first the first thing that i think of and you got to educate me on this is where the hell am i going to put this like where like i i picture my dad's in his garage yeah. he would have his workbench and then all his remember all the hooks and stuff on, this is what this is this is yeah. a gun this is a, a a shooter a marksman or a markswoman's yeah workbench right here and you got that wall that you got all of your tools hanging from. But if I, if you look at it, you have to have a pretty good dedicated space. Talk to me about what do you have to have as a, as just a man and woman in a house? Does it have to be in a garage? Does it have to be reinforced with a cement wall? How, what is this made out Mm -hmm. of? How heavy is it? And how can I say, yeah, I want to do this instead of just a regular gun safe.
0: The um, it's interesting when you really dig into deep dive into security your best security is secrecy, always has been. People can't steal what they don't know exists. And uh, if you're doing the big gun walls, we've done a lot of homes where they, when they're building a home, they do a secret room where it's a magnet in a spot of the wall and the thing pops open, nobody even knows it's there. Um, if you're making, a, I mean, buying a big heavy gun safe is expensive. All your guns are stuck in one spot. It's, they're difficult to move, difficult to deal with. If you're gonna build a gun room, um, we look at aircrete as uh it's insulation, it's, it's foam, inje- it's cement injected with foam. They use it for insulation, but you can film between the studs of a room. It's inexpensive and it hardens like a rock. And it's great fire protection and it's, uh, put heavy doors on it and you've got a secure room. Gun walls are about 15% of our sales. The bulk of our sales are the agile cabinets, fast box, and then our answer safes. And the agile is, is by far the number one. And that's that idea of, you know, we call decentralized storage. You know, I mean, the idea of storing all your guns in one spot is really kind of crazy when you consider why do you own firearms? You know, why do people own firearms? Well, there's hunting, sports, all the fun stuff. But at the end of the day, the Second Amendment was created for personal freedom, personal liberty. Owning a firearm, trained, when you're trained, you own a firearm, it puts you in a position to defend your rights. And, it does, you know, go back, you know, 5,000 years and the biggest, strongest guy ruled, regardless of who he was or how he was. It was brutal. But now firearms is an equalizer. If you're, if you're trained, again, safe, it just simply means you have liberty and freedom and you can defend it at an individual level. And that's what it comes down to. But so when you look at firearm storage, we look at it as like the Agile is. Store firearms in a manner that gives you an advantage. All guns in America should be locked. Every gun, if every gun in America was properly locked, there's a lot of tragedies that wouldn't happen. And when I say properly locked, I mean out of sight. But just because they're locked doesn't mean you can't have two to three second access anywhere in your home. And if you want faster than that, just simply carry a firearm in your home. But our system, through decentralized storage, you're never more than three or four seconds Wave a gun i look at the newtown shooting at the lanza he walked into his mother's house picked up her rifle and shot her twice with it, or three times with it killed her and then went to the school if she simply had her guns locked in, a, in, a, in anything there, there's no guarantee you're going to prevent a tragedy but at least she had she bought herself time she bought time to talk to her son and maybe realize that his you know, some switch had thrown. This kid was unglued and she could have got him help or got done something, but she never had the chance. He walked in, picked up a gun and just killed her and then went to a school. That's what we like. Every gun has to be locked. And our solution is,
1: decentralizes, store guns where it makes sense. So so what does that tell me when you say, okay, the Agile is our number one seller? What is the Agile?
0: Agile is our Agile Ultralight Gun Safe. It's a modular six gun safe. Um, long gun, handgun? Yeah, long guns. It's 52 inches. And then we've got a 40 inch that stacks on top for either shorter rifles or gear storage. Again, it's based on our military concept of modular storage. You go into a safe dealer, and uh I know some of the, good, some of the great guys, but one of the things you always hear is buy the biggest safe you can afford because you're going to grow into it. Everybody's eventually going to get another firearm. Instead said that whole thing, how many guns do you have? I don't know, I'm going to have more next year. It's crazy. Buy what you need. And if you get another firearm, buy more. If big heavy gun safes are, they're dinosaurs wrapped around your neck. The average American moves every 6.5 years. The two most left behind things talk to any realtor, hot tubs and gun safes. It costs more to move a gun safe than it costs to buy a gun safe. Moving companies will not move them. They They don't want the liability of that weight in the truck. You have to hire a safe company to extract it, shipping company to ship it to your new house, and a safe company to put it back in. And what is all the weight getting you? It's not getting you anything. The heaviest safes out there still when you buy them, bolt this safe to the floor. Our agile cabinets lightweight, but you bolt it in place and it's just as secure. The weight of a gun safe is drywall. When you look at a gun safe, all the weight is layers of drywall. We use the same gauge steel as everybody else. We just don't use all the drywall. And the drywall is in there, they say, for fire rating. It's really not. It's Drywall is in a safe to offset the weight of the door. So when you open the door, the safe doesn't fall over. I spent When we first went into retail, my thought was license our technology to the gun safe industry. I didn't know anything about this, but I did have cool tech. So let's just license it. So I met with all the major players in the gun safe industry. I met with their senior teams to talk about licensing it. And after a couple of meetings, I realized we'll never do business with these people. They had no interest in it. It was, uh, it was shocking. The uh, America's largest safe company. I met with their senior team and they said, well, Tom, your system in, our, in this safe, it only holds 12 guns. This safe is rated for 40 guns. And I'm, I'm going, you can rate it for 100 guns. That safe doesn't hold more than 12 guns. He goes, I go, look, your capacities are ridiculously overstated. And they're head of national sales, America's largest gun safe company. Well, Tom, that's our industry's little white lie. We say 40. If, they, if our competitor says 42, then we say 44. I said, I said, right there in the back of my mind, I'm like, this is crap. I'm like, I said, but that's, it's just not reality. I said, your consumers are smarter than this. You're, 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 you're envisioning the safe buyer as an idiot. and They're not. They know what they want. So our safe, it's a six gun safe. It holds six guns. No guns are ever touching. Our guns are held in one row. You never dig. Again, coming from the military. Straight line access. One arm, one gun. You can open the safe with one arm, remove a rifle, close it and it's locked. You're never putting stuff in the ground, dig, you know, in a big old safe. You're you're digging through it to get to a gun. Secondly, I've got I've seen guys with big safes of 15 guns packed in there. Anything missing? I don't, uh-huh. I don't know. We use organizational awareness. You glance at the sea, open up, you know if something's missing right away. We also have, you know, the concept of three-dimensional storage we use in the military. And that is the integration of all the storage trays and bins allows you to maximize every cubic inch of space within the cabinet or safe to store all the gear. But again, I saw, you know, literature for the gun safe industry is, from a security standpoint, is shocking. and it's It's almost bordering on humorous. I see it's, You've seen these ads in magazines all the time. It's a beautiful room, river rock fireplace, you know, deer, you know, stagnant, you know, the antlers mounted on the wall, just the man cave alternate pool table. And in the corners is beautiful, like dark maroon shiny safe with this Wild West lettering on it. And the ad is um, invest in storage, heirloom product that you can hand on, you know, sh- pride of ownership. It's all this stuff about showing off your gun safe that you're investing in this heirloom thing you're showing off. I'm like... It needs to be a the, secret. The most valuable thing you stuff you own is in this box and you're advertising it to the world. You're having cocktail parties. People are over. Do you know every single person? Do you know their friends? He has a nice safe. Well, a lot of people in America don't know that modern carbide tools, you take a circular saw, and I've got videos of a... It's my 1987. And the year I got married, I bought a skill saw. It's a circular saw, cheap, Home Depot. You buy a modern carbide blade. It costs about $25 for the blade. And I cut a a Fat Boy Jr. It's a 40-gun safe. I cut it completely in half in a minute and 18 seconds. Then I cut a 12-inch by 12-inch square hole in the side of the safe in 18 seconds. These modern saw blades, these are designed to cut rebar up to like one-inch thick rebar on concrete sites all day long. It cuts... I mean, gun safes, most gun safes are anywhere from 10 to 14 gauge steel, somewhere 9 gauge, it goes through like butter. And even if you go to a plate steel safe, which is too heavy to put in most houses, it slows the saw down marginally. I go from 18 seconds to maybe 40. Modern tools cut through safes. Real real professional thieves know this. So we look at these ads and we're like, this is crazy. Our system, decentralized storage, very simple. FBI crime data, we spent a lot of time with this. Thief breaks into your house. Where are they going? Master bathroom. They want prescription drugs. They find them and they're gone. When a thief finds something of value, they typically, they're gone. So master bathroom, master bedroom, home office, den, dining room. They're out. They're out of your house in less than nine minutes. Most break-ins occur during the day. So if they know there's a safe in the house, they make, they make, if they have tools, they're, they're going to cut it open. They're going to extract it. So our system, decentralized storage, master bedroom, it's where we sleep. We're vulnerable. So one small fast access safe, one firearm per shooter. If your wife and husband and wife or two people and they're both proficient, two guns, one each. No more than that. Kitchens, next place I look. Kitchen pantry, thieves ignore kitchens. I've got a big pantry. I've got an Agile in my pantry. Now I've got a big gun collection. In my pantry is an Agile. I've got five, just rifles that I own. And I've got one AR-15 that's racked, ready to roll. Also, I've got an exit point to the home. So in event of a break-in, and I'm home, I can arm myself and get out of the house. If I'm alone, if I got kids, it's a different scenario. Front hall closet, the coat closet next to your front door. Thieves ignore closets. I mean, historic, I mean, look at, they don't, they don't, they don't, they don't wanna steal coats. They're not gonna dig through the pockets looking for $2. So next to my front door, I've got another agile cabinet with, I got some lever action guns part of my collection. I've got a pump shotgun with rounds in the tube and I've got an AR-15 that's racked and ready to roll. I go to the front door. I don't recognize somebody. They decide they want to kick it in. Two and a half seconds, I'm armed and able to defend myself. Your den, again, I go, it's, it's not a secure room. One, possibly two. handgun in a small, fast access safe. If you've got a big collection, you've got an extra bedroom in your house. A lot of people have that. The kids go, they got the guest room. Take that one bedroom. Bed, either have it stripped or have it just made neatly. Table with a lamp. A chair and a piece of generic art in the wall, and the rest of the room is empty. Thieves, if they're taking a more time and running the room, running the house quick, opening doors, they look in, see oh, guest room. They're not going to go through, they're going to ignore that room. There's nothing in it. In that closet, I've got an agile quad system. I've got 24 rifles, big part of my collection. It's also at the end of a hallway. So, in the event of a home invasion or upstairs, we get to that room, we're armed, I've got a hallway, they'll never get to us. We're on the phone with 911, and I've got a hallway I can easily defense, a shooting lane that nobody is going to get through. Um, you know, that's a real quick walkthrough of decentralized Not, it's storage. So good, it's that, it's a, It's, look, if you own firearms, ask yourself, why do you own them? If defense is part of it, store firearms in a way that makes sense. And the biggest thing I hear from people is my kids are gone. I, it's just me and the wife, so I've got you know, I've got a shotgun next to my bed. I've got the one over here. I've got a handgun here. They don't worry about it. But then when you look at the statistics of tragedies, it's the one in a million that makes the news. It's the it's you know you break the, the one link of a chain breaks, you stop the event. So you take that kind of a scenario for people out there. You got no more kids. Well, okay, maybe you live in a little community. Your neighbor's husband has a heart attack. They've got kids. Bad. He's going to the hospital. Pfft not expected to survive. The wife's freaked out. She's getting in the hospital. We'll watch the kids. Now, all of a sudden you've got, you know, your kids are grown up, but you're watching your neighbor's kids they are over there. The Kids are kind of freaked out. Things are going. Maybe the guy's in the hospital for a week. The wife's back and forth. So the kids are spending time at your neighbor's house and they forget that they've got a loaded handgun somewhere in the house. And the kids are curious. They're bored. They're moving around the house. Next thing you know, boom, you've got a tragedy on top of another, but, it's that's a one in a million type thing happening but when you actually read through the stories that's what happens that's those are the events that we want to prevent the easy if you prevent the easy stuff you prevent a lot of stuff cuz most of the most of the accidental most of the tragedy kids being killed are it's just silly accidental stuff and it could all be stopped and i think if we actually if everybody in america would properly lock their guns We wouldn't have this fight for the second amendment. Like we do. You just, you take a lot of pressure off of it. We got States passing laws about having to prove you have a safe, proving you have storage. Just they shouldn't have to do that. If you're going to buy, go to store and exercise your right to own a firearm, you're exercising a right to use deadly force. You know, with, with freedom comes responsibility. Lock the damn gun up. Don't, don't, put yourself in a position to be part of a tragedy and there's no reason not to have them locked now um we make a lot of fast access safes a lot of people you make do. a
1: fast access handgun safe for your bed we do
0: we have a fast access safe will be launched at the beginning of next year next
1: year so yeah. is it is is it a combo or is it a foot fingerprint or how no, we you... use we use a mechanical lock
0: so it's a push button i'm not a big fan here's like the biometric locks we don't we would never use those and they're popular and a lot of people talk about them but the challenge is this we consider what we do is never fail this is never fail technology you're in your home somebody kicks in the front door and they're shooting at you you have you need you need 2 to 3 you need to be on that you need to get to that gun so fast fingerprint readers biometrics if your hands are wet they won't open if your hands are dirty they won't open if you're wearing gloves they won't open you don't have time sometimes if you're not working in your car you're doing something you're painting you have time to wash your hands and clean them and dry them get that lock to open you don't so we don't use it because we consider last line of defense our safes are all ergonomic push button locks so you can do it and I, everybody who buys our product like our fast box it bolts under your bed it holds an ar-15 with a magazine and cqb optic and i tell everybody put it on your bed get the gun in there every night before you go to bed you turn the light off reach down in the dark and just do your combination by feel open the safe and then close it go to sleep do that every day it's like playing a musical instrument you're building muscle memory you're learning how to play your safe you do that every day for 30 days you're building 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 that subconscious muscle memory and then do it about once a week for every time you go to bitch once we just just down and do it what happens is you're sleeping one night all of a sudden window breaks door gets kicked in Things go from zero to 60 really fast, but you're not panicked. I mean, if you are panicked, but you're still, that muscle memory, boom, 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 two seconds, boom, you're armed, you're behind your bed, don't, guns point at the door, ready to defend yourself. That's how, you know, that's how we look at home defense. That's, you know, if you own a pump, you know, short barrel pump shotgun, practice, you know, learn how to use it. You know, you put yourself in a position to defend yourself. Most people, a lot of people bought their first guns during COVID. They went out, they trained, they shot. I talked to a lot of people. These are first-time... First-timers. A lot, of, a lot of these are anti... We're anti-gun people. And they, they get out and they find they really like it. But what happens is they go in the range, they're shooting, and then things... Life, life happens. And the gun's back in a case. It's locked, maybe in a case, up in the closet. And, you know, a week goes by, a month goes by. All of a sudden, it's been six months and they haven't shot their gun. Are they in a position to defend themselves with deadly force? I'm going to say they're not. Are they going to make good decisions? I'm going to say they're not. Every year... Every year, somebody gets shot because they think it's an intruder, but it's not. It's it's one of their kids, or it's some you know. It's things happen. It's we always come. If you're gonna have firearms for home defense, get to the range often, take classes, train. I love getting out. I mean, I'm not I'm not bad with a handgun. It's not my weapon of choice. I'm if I'm gonna defend my home, I'm using AR-15 or a shotgun. I'm I prefer a rifle. It's uh, but I'm. Very proficient with that, I'm good with long range, but every opportunity I have to work with an instructor or get into a class doesn't matter. You know some people oh, I don't know. It's like I go into classes all the time where I'm the idiot or I'm the genius. It doesn't matter. There's something to learn from every single class you go into. I encourage everybody get it and it's fun. It's always a great weekend to get out. bunch of people meet a bunch of new people, shoot, learn, train, and uh, come away with it with something better.
1: So, educating America about better gun safety. Every gun should be locked. Training. It's something that is easy to go out and think you're proficient with your gun. Think you're proficient yeah. with with oh, yeah. how to aim or how to shoot with low light situations. Um, you know, military are so trained in, you know, heart rates and... And panic mode oh, yeah. of being able to control their breathing and can, you know, door knockers that are going in, they can't overreact and get all, they yeah. can't be running down an alley in Kuwait and, and have their heart rate at 180 and expect yeah. to aim their gun and hit their target if they need it, if they need it. So, you know, everybody's training in this. There's all sorts of exercises you can do yeah. from breathing to sustained breathing, to controlled breathing, to exercising and fitness, to actually yeah. training with your firearm to make sure that you can shoot in different positions. Like you say, get, get to play like a guitar and get to know you're safe, be able to sit up in your bed if you need to, as you pull that out. Um, There's, there's a lot of things that secure it is educating through your messaging and through your culture that we don't take this lightly. This isn't something to where you just say you're a gun owner, just to say you're a gun owner. There's, there, there's a lot of truth in what you just said about that ad of that beautiful maroon safe with the the gold riding on it and the rocky oh, mountain yeah. elk bugling and the the <laughs> breath coming out of his mouth and the steam and you're like man everybody that was just at my house knows where i hide all my diamonds and all my ber- all my bank account yeah. information and all my whatever's in there plus my firearms and now all of a sudden you you're educa- you're educating people that the best defense or you know best safety is is secretness and, is- and 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 knowing your layout and educating your family on the layout. And we do this daily, routinely. You know, we yep. do exercises of what do you do if you see a knife? Yep. Because we might have cleaned birds and one got left out. Okay. What do we do if they're, if the, the safe might have got, if Uncle Clay or Uncle Chad left the safe open because we were taking photos of a gun? This is what you do. But that's no excuse for when strangers come over or the neighbor's kids come over. Yep. Or like security is adding all of these different layers of education and instruction, because it's not something that you're going to just wake up one night without training and be like, Oh, somebody's in my house. Okay. Just let me go out there. And it's, no, it's not, that ain't how no. it's going to go down.
0: No, it's, it's uh, I spent three days at the S 12 event with, uh, a Mickey shook and it's a handgun intensive. And he puts together an interesting event because again, I'm not a big handgun guy, but we were one of the sponsors. So I went down, I went through the whole program and, uh, at first I was, I was humbled. I, w- I was like, I was really bad. It was, I, I mean, you, every guy thinks there's, you can, you can shoot, you can, and you can drive, right? <laughs> yeah, and not it, get lost. Yeah, the, uh, and I was amazed. I, I, I wasn't good at it. In fact, I was, it's, if you're not shooting handguns all the time, hitting a silhouette at, at 15 yards is not a no-brainer. It's, you, it's you've got, I mean, especially to put rounds down, to you know, to get, multiple rounds on target and uh, this was a very intensive high heart rate high um exertion where we're really doing things we're physically exhausted and we're in shooting drills to get you into those mindsets and it was a lot we did a lot of work with breathing exercises and all the stuff how do you calm yourself quickly to put yourself in a position and it is a lifestyle i think it's a fun lifestyle Oh, to have well, that
1: confidence to, yeah. perform, to, you're performing. Yeah. You're performing uh, to save your family. You're, absolutely. This is your, I'm not saying it's your time to shine, but it's, you're, you're in the batter's box. Yeah. You're, you're up to bat now because it can happen to anybody. Oh, it's, yeah. it's, reg, it's, it's, it's shown through history that there's been castles broken into and mansions broken into and double wide trailers broken into and your statistics of, you know, yep. of, of, of daytime robberies. And if your wife's home alone. What is she going to do? She called in sick for work today. The thief doesn't know that. Yep. He's been scoping out this house. Everybody leaves at this time. Boom boom yep. boom. It's kind of like the home alone, remember? They're like, "Oh, family's gone." I was "Oh, Joe Pesci's over there, but they've they left their kid behind. And he, and you know, what I'm saying yeah. I know that that's I'm not trying to shed comedy <laughs> no, on but it, it's, but it's- anything can happen to where you might be in a position one day or one evening or one night that it's going to be your time wow. to defend your family and your yep. belongings.
0: Yeah, people always people ask sometimes Okay, what's the number one thing I can do with firearms to defend, you know, for home defense? I said home defense, number one thing you can do is put motion sensor lights outside your home and trim your bushes back away from your house. Number one thing you can do is thieves are like bullies. You got a bully in a school, just don't be the I mean, don't be the weakest kid. I mean, it's, bullies pick on the weakest kid. Yeah, and stand a thief, up. To a thief is going after the easiest target. He approaches your house and all of a sudden it lights up. He's going to go to their neighbor. He's just, I mean, we all want to stop and end the thief because he's a bad guy. But the first thing is, secure your home. Secure. Best thing you can do is light, light, motion sensor lights and a lot of them. Light it up. And that's going to get, deter the bulk of your break-ins. And then after that, then I look at decentralized storage. The other portion of decentralized storage that a lot of people don't realize that is an advantage is is in the safety of your firearms. That's the other We spend a lot of money and time in firearms. Firearms are precision instrument. A firearm treated well is a true precision instrument. A a, a military sniper goes into combat. They have one shot and they have to make that shot or else other people will be killed quite often. They give away their positions. They've got to take the guy out. They use our system because it guarantees the rifle will perform perfectly every time. Our storage solution stores rifles in a manner where they will perform perfectly. So your rifles are, your, your, your number one investment quite often is your gun collection. Now, big safes, they talk about fire ratings. Well, you buy a big safe for a fire rating. There's no data that shows fire ratings work or mean anything. Talk to, I thought, talk to any firefighter. Do gun safes survive hot fires? The answer is no, they don't. The rating system is complete nonsense. They put safes, oh, We we built the true safe. We have the true safe. We don't give it a fire rating, we give you the data of what happened in the oven. So they put a safe in an oven, they bring the temperature up to 1400 degrees and they start a timer with a, with a thermometer in the safe. And the m- thermometer breaks 350, boom, that, you're, you're, that's your fire rating. So our safe went two hours, 20 minutes. The safe had been sitting in the sun. We start, when we started the test, the safe was at 100, it was like 99 degrees when we started this test. So we were already warm, so it probably would've gone longer. I would say it's got a 35-minute to 40-minute rating. And the reason is fires aren't ovens. Fires are convective. The air moving in your home in a hot fire can be 60, 70 miles an hour. So I tell people, think about this. Heat your oven up to 450 or 500 degrees like you're doing a pizza. Put your hand in the oven. You can hold it in there for probably 20, 30 seconds. It's getting hot, but it's not burning. It's getting hot, not to the point where you're going to eventually pull it out. Now... Take a jet engine with exhaust temperature at 500 degrees coming out at 60 miles an hour. Put your hand into that stream. In a second, you're, your skin's burned off your bones. Convective force is unbelievably powerful. A fire is a convective force. So a one-hour rated gun safe, I'm going to say goes 10 to 12 minutes at most. The other side of it is it doesn't matter anyhow. You don't know how hot your gun's got metal that's been, you know, tempered steel at 350, 400 degrees, you're losing temper. You're, lo- you're, you're changing the metallurgy. You're not going to use these, these firearms are done. They may look okay, but are you going to trust, especially if it's a high powered rifle that's been in a fire and you and the safe looks surviving. cooked. You don't know you, know. you don't know. So our solution, we don't put a fire rating on our safes, but when you decentralize your storage, a couple things happen. Look at fire. When you look at actual fire insurance, insurance companies are the ones that report all fire claims. Fire insurance, the data is very available and there's a lot of it. 87% of all fires are contained in the kitchen and they're contained within the oven or within a pot on the stove. The insurance claim was smoke damage. The bulk of all insurance claims is smoke damage, not heat damage. It's extremely rare to have a heat fire, I mean, an open flame in your home. When they do occur, it's use, it's electrical or it's carelessness, smoking and things like that. Of the heat damage claims, most of them are contained to a corner or a part of a room. If you live in a city with a paid fire for, firefighting force, response time is probably three minutes, three to five. I live in a small town with a volunteer firefighting force. My response time is 11 minutes. Anybody can call their fire department and give them your address, say what's the response time. They'll know it. Because insurance, when you get a fire insurance policy, it's rated on response time, and they know it for location. That's why they, they, if you're getting a policy, they say, where, where is your nearest fire department? And they rate it on the response time. So the, they're going to be there fast. The odds of your house burning to the ground are so low. When you decentralize your storage, if you get a fire in one room, happens to be right next to your safe, you might lose a few rifles, but the bulk of your collection is fine. You know, it's yet if you've got one big safe and the fire happens to be right there, you've lost everything. Secondly, if you're gone for a you're gone for a two-week vacation, thieves break in and they know this. It's a planned, it's a much bigger hit. Again, thieves leave when they find something of value. So you got a big safe in your den, they cut it open, boom, they they clean it out and they leave and they're done.
1: You got it safe over here with a couple guns.
0: Right. Well, if you're decentralized and they're running the house, maybe eventually they find one, they're going to cut it open and they're going to gut it. But you're going to lose four guns or six guns. Because once they find something of value, now, now the clock's ticking for them. Once they have something of value, they win. Any more time in your home is putting them at greater and greater risk. They leave. They're happy. They got what they wanted. But you've only lost a small portion. You know, I show that video of people. I'm cutting safes in half. People ask, are your safes sawproof? I said, no. They can cut through my safe. I'm using the same steel that the big safe companies do. I'm just putting it into a smaller package that allows you to store your guns where thieves don't look. And, you know, we simple hardened steel locking. One of the funny things that you'll see in gun safe ads, I see the shot show is the gun safe industry forces everybody to look at the door. You look at advertising, it's always six bolts, 12 bolts, corner bolts, this, but all they talk about the bolts, the number of bolts, there's a, there's a safe company that has a clear door and they're advertising showing all these gears turning and it's a marvel. It's really cool. And they fill the safe with drywall to offset the weight of that big door, but they're focusing you on plate steel on the door and drill plates. You can't possibly drill the lock. All this security. A true thief ignores the door and cuts a hole in the side of the safe. Safes? Or they see all the videos, guys prying safes open. They tip it over. They're showing they can't pry our safe open. Safes are cut open. They're not pried open. And they're easy to do. So by all sudden, anybody listening, you know, yes, you can cut my safes open too. Nobody's going to build the safe that's going to stop that. That's usable. We make the true safe. You can't cut the true safe open unless you've got a lot of time and multiple types of saws. The true safe is, we call it the true safe, it's based on the original Silas Herring patent for the first true safe in America in 1856. And it's a steel inner safe with a steel outer box. The center in between that is filled with a concrete composite. It's extremely heavy. It's an eight gun safe. Um, You can't put it up wood stairs, it's too heavy. Um, it's got a huge fire. I mean, we, we give it a, we don't give it a fire rating. We give you the chart when you buy the safe, two hours, 20 minutes in an oven. Again, I say it goes 30, 40 minutes. It's a monster. And the carbide blade that cuts through all these safes, the minute it hits the concrete, the carbide's done. You take a, you take a concrete blade and the steel gums it up. So you've got this. Eventually, if you're persistent, you can cut that open. It'll take you hours. And, but eventually any safe can be breached given time, but we make the true safe just to prove a point that this is what it actually takes to make an impenetrable safe. But do you want this in your home? You're not going to move it. You set it in place, moving company leaves, that safe company. If you decide you want to move it, you've got to call them. It's about 400 bucks. They'll come out with their equipment. They make special equipment to lift it. It's on rollers to move it and put it somewhere else. It's way too heavy. Well, that's why hot tubs are left behind too. Exactly, exactly. But we made it to prove a point saying, look, guys, this is what it takes to make a real safe. And what the safe industry is making is simply a metal box full of drywall. And it's, you know, the worst part of the drywall is it's all corrosive. The, the you mean talk about that. The inside, what's inside a traditional American gun safe, most of that's banned from use in military armories, banned from use in any museum. It's all corrosive. The adhesive that they use for the carpeting is a rubbery adhesive, so it doesn't, crack, doesn't dry and the carpeting falls. It's full of formaldehyde. Highly corrosive. Drywall uses formaldehyde as a dispersing agent in a slurry when they make it. Corrosive. Drywall contains pyrite, fool's gold. It's in, it's in gypsum when they mine it. You can't not have it. In fact, Chinese drywall has a lot of pyrite in it because of the nature of the mines. Pyrite is covered with ferrooxidant bacteria. Ferrooxidin is a bacteria that eats metal. It's used in the mining industry to strip metal from low grade ores, but in a gun safe in the drywall, it eats the pyrite and slowly consumes it over years. The waste product is sulfuric and sulfurous acids that it off gases the bacteria. So your safe is in a steady bath of the two most corrosive acids to steal, probably. Sulfurous and sulfuric acids. That's why the gun safe industry sells millions of dollars in products to stop corrosion. The golden rod, the deskins, all these things to stop corrosion. We don't recommend using anything in our safes. If a gun is properly cleaned, oiled lightly, not going to corrode. Check them. I mean, if you're storing your gun for years, I check my guns once in a while. If you live in a super humid area, you'd probably have a dehumidifier in your house because the wood of your house is going to get all puffy before your guns are going to corrode if they're they're cleaned properly. But a gun safe, it's a real threat because the materials they're using are corrosive. And I'll tell anybody, you go to a store with gun safes, a safe that's been closed for a little bit, have the clerk if it's closed, open it up. As it opens, just put your nose in there and smell. You smell sulfur. Sulfur. And that smell—that's sulfuric acid. That's because it was shipped over from China, probably. It's been closed for a while, and that's building up. And that's highly corrosive environment. And if you do have a safe, most people's traditional safes—open them every week, just vent them. That's—it's not—it's not hard. Just, but you have to do that. But just know that your guns are in an environment that is hostile to them. Again, I go crazy with this. Why does the industry do this? Why do they use these materials? they could use other materials for nominally more money. I mean, you're talking about dollars, maybe on a $2,000 safe, it might add $15 to the cost to to not use those materials. But it comes back to when you look at the gun safe industry, who owns the gun safe industry? Who owns gun safe companies? Do you know, know, I mean, you deal with a lot of people in the industry. Do you know any active hunters, sports shooters, or firearms people that own a gun safe company? I don't.
1: No, there might be some smaller versions yeah, in the military Yeah, there might be some world, guys out there, but- But the, most of them are just large equity. The, the big players,
0: yeah. Liberty is, Liberty is owned by an uh, investment firm. Yeah. Canon bought Stack on That forms, probably forms the biggest company now. And they bought them with venture capital money. It's owned by investment firms. So their whole, their whole purpose is to generate profit for their shareholders, which I got no problem with that. I mean it's you know I'm a, I'm a capitalist I believe in that's 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 a great thing. However when you're dealing with firearms and deadly force you've got to consider that. But what is the purpose of a gun safe? To protect store and protect firearms. Why would you use materials that are corrosive to the very thing you're trying to protect? Because you don't it's, they don't even know this. They're unaware of this because they don't even take the time to look. They're just owners. Yeah. But the, gun, the interior, inside of a gun safe hasn't changed in 50
1: years. I want to come back like, with part two of this. Yeah. But I want to end part one with you, Tom. Yeah. What is the mission of Secure It?
0: We want to change the way America thinks about firearm storage. It's a broad statement. It's, But really, it comes down to changing the way they think about it. When you think storage, you've got to think active storage. You store firearms the way you use firearms if it's a defensive firearm store them in a defensive way if if you've got collectible guns store them in a way that's collectible all the stuff that we use in our safes is all museum grade meaning nothing off gases our saddles are made with an olefin nylon blend which it's not just cheap plastic it's actually a blend that doesn't off gas because relic weapons in a a museum really old valuable stuff you don't want to leave a circle on the on the guns we are very specific in what we design so we meet all the standards again storing the gun in a matter that's best for the gun
1: the, change the way we think about it
0: Yeah, change the way we think about firearm storage is what we want to do with america
1: Yeah, you said a lot of things today no yeah. digging the military open yeah. it with one arm reach yeah. in with the other hand grab it close it lock yeah. it right back up so you're out there and nobody can get in behind you you know right. and, and have an easy access to it's, that door yeah. there's a lot of ways there's that, that's what I've gotten out of this entire conversation, Mr. Tom, is thinking about it. It's yeah. like we started off with the entrepreneurial spirit and yeah. and the ways that you thought about sales, yeah. sales and the way you thought about growing businesses yeah. and the way you thought about, you know, getting get, being where you make comments about surrounding yeah. yourself with the right people. We Those are all ways that we are, you know, right. thinking about, you know, building a business different than somebody else might be thinking about yeah. just taking a job. And that's. The whole thing that now I've gotten out of the secure mission is, man, there's so much that you can train yourself with. There's mm-hmm. so much that you can exercise your mind and your body with to be more proficient. So when that time comes, it's nothing that you can be taken for granted. There's so many instances and situations that we can be put into or our families can be put into like the the death of a neighbor or a hard yeah. attack of a neighbor and his kids are over your house more than they were. not And your kids have been out of the house for 10 years. Yep. Now, you you know, you're you're thinking of a lot of things. And you're making people think and educate themselves. Yeah. Make a list. Write it down. I want to come back with part two. I want to talk more about the materials of a gun safe. Okay. I want to talk more about fire rating because that's huge in the gun safe world. And there's a lot of videos out there that are showing <laughs> that hey, if your house burns down, your safe still going to be standing there with operable guns, right? Like yeah. I really want to dig into that because it's not true. No. Um, and then I want to get into a lot of the things that secure it is bringing to you, your employees, your families whether it's empathy, whether it's charity, whether it's um, the, the, the ranch that you're building, the retreat that you're building, you're going to be able to give back to wildlife, to conservation, to humanity, to the youth, inner city youth. You have all these mindsets that you've worked your butt off your entire life as an entrepreneur and now secure. It's affording you and your employees and your families a chance to give back. And that's what it's all about I want to come back and discuss all of that on part 2 this is exciting this room is awesome this brand <laughs> this brand is amazing that yeah. that exercise that we did today and we yep. you know we can let it out of the bag we're we're going to release the Foul life edition yep. um answer safe that is going to be our our, our our gunny sack it's going to be our cubby it's going to be our locker. Yeah. if you were a football player in high school you took so much pride in opening that thing and knowing yeah. where your girdle is and your pads and your shoulder pads and your mouthpiece and your helmet and and whatever motivation you needed in there you knew what it was. if you go into an NFL locker, an NBA locker, a major league locker it's organized they know exactly what they're trying to do. this safe is going to allow the wing shooter, the sporting yep. play shooter, the shotgun shooter, the dog trainer. It's going to give us that organizational yep. organization is the key to success. Understanding yep. of, of where your stuff is. Where's my Where's my charger for my dog collar? I, I charged it last time I was in this hotel. Well, where's my dog collar? I took it off of axle and duff after this hunt. I thought I put it in the truck. No, you didn't go back and put it in a place that you take pride in. Yep. And that's what this safe and this, this entire ideology and practice that you've come up with would secure it gives the end consumer, the end user, that pride of like, this is my space and I'm going to organize it to where I know I can get to my stuff and I can keep accountability of everything I need to be successful and secure and safe. It's genius. Thank you for uh, being on the show.
0: Thank you very much, Chad. This is, this has been wonderful. I thought it was great. That's Tom.
1: Tom. I love secure it. This company, this brand, this culture, just being here the last 36 hours has enlightened me to become better. I have a daughter. I have Employees, I have family, I have friends. I want us to be safe. It's easy to think that we're going to be, it's easy to take for granted, but is it going to be in your deck of cards to perform when the time comes? And that's what we have to ask ourselves. I know plenty of people like my good friend John Shaw, Houston Shaw. They have Mid South and Tennessee and Mississippi. They have Shaw shooting in Hagerman, Idaho. I've trained with them many times, hundreds of hours. And to watch these two with guns, And talk about it and how proficient they are. I know they would perform if it came down to it. And I want to believe I could too. And being around Mr. Tom the last three days, and I know we're going to have a strong friendship and partnership going in the future. I want to know that I'll be able to perform. I want my daughter Elissa to know she will be when she, it comes time for her to take on the responsibility of having her own dorm or her own apartment or her own firearm, her hunter's safety card, her CCW and concealed weapons. There's a lot to think about. That's why communication, education, instruction, exercising, all of these things can be wrapped into a life of confidence, expertise, and and what it takes to perform with that firearm. Do not take it for granted. Secure it is going to teach us the the way it's going to teach us how to think differently about firearm storage and how to get to that firearm and perform with that firearm. That's what I love about the culture of Secure It. Chad Belding, Mr. Tom from the company, coming at you live from his headquarters in Casanova, New York. I'm in the state of New York talking with Tom about Secure It. I love this place. Look for more. We'll be back with Part 2 soon. In the meantime, check out this song, 2AM Logic My Foul Life. in my soul i and
0: never quit Rise in my veins.
1: A day like this must be red My final life is in full swing.